W. Edwards Deming, the father of statistical process control and a demigod of industrial engineering in Japan, and a critical thinker about business processes, came up with this rule that's now got his name on it. 95% of variation in the performance of a system is caused by the system itself. Only 5% is caused by the people. Now, this is generally now known as the Deming 95-5 rule, and you're probably already familiar with another rule that's similar. It's another observation, the Pareto Principle, or also known as the 80-20 rule. And both of these rules say something about the nature of the world. And they both give us tools for thinking about how to be more effective at what we do. And particularly in the case of the 95-5 rule, they give us some insight into the limits of how effective we can be as individuals. Deming's point was that even for exceptional people, in most processes, any effect the individual may have, due to skill or expertise, being careful, working fast, working hard, is swamped by the system they are part of. Now, this sounds terrible for product managers, right? Since we are usually individual contributors, and we mostly don't have much in the way of tools, so it's up to us to be super skilled, super expert, super careful, super fast, right? To get all the stuff done. And realistically, therefore, like most people, we don't want this rule shoved in our faces. Of course, as product managers, we do know that this rule is true for our users. And that's why we try to make our products intuitive, try to ensure that the users get the results they need and that they want, even if they aren't experts, and ideally design our tools so they can't get bad results, even if they use the system incorrectly. In other words, we mold our products so that the desired value is delivered and is as independent as possible on individual users' performance, just as Deming suggested. Now, no system is foolproof, of course. But what if we do look in the mirror, though, and recognize that we, as individuals, are at least partially impacted by Deming's rule as well? Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode number 74 of All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. As I always say, I do this podcast because I think there are better ways of thinking about doing product management and all the activities that entails. And sometimes I do the podcast because I learn about interesting ideas and I want to share and explore them. And this episode is more along those lines. But as in every episode, you're going to get a new mental model along with some fun attempts to help you think through about how to be more effective at getting great products to market. Today's topic is a fundamental truth about what we do. The systems we work within have a huge influence on our output and outcomes. What does this mean, and how can we use these ideas to improve our output and outcomes? You can find the notes for this show, plus a place to leave me a comment or a complaint on this episode at alltheresponsibility.com slash 74. Now, in case you are not not convinced about the explanatory power of Deming's 95-5 rule, let's take a little trip down a fun sideline. Another way of thinking about the power of the system over the individual. And this came to mind because the curtailed 2020 NBA season just ended with LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers beating the Miami Heat in six games for the NBA Finals Championship. Now, LeBron is one of the greatest basketball players of all time, one of the GOATs, and perhaps the GOAT, although there are, of course, other players who can lay claim to that title as well. Now, in his 10 seasons in the NBA, James has averaged fewer than 30 points per game. His best season, he averaged just over 30 points per game. Now, Michael Jordan, another candidate for the greatest of all time, had one season where he averaged 32 points per game, and his career average is just over 30 points. So, slightly better career average than LeBron James. So, why do I mention all of this? Well, 
If you're thinking about individual performance versus systems, maybe you'd like to consider the question of why LeBron James, one of the greatest of all time, doesn't have a 60 points per game season. And to be even more outlandish, why does no player in NBA history have a negative points per game average for any season? Well, obviously, it's because they play within a system. The system is the rules of NBA basketball, and in that system, no one will ever have a 60 points per game average over the course of a season. It will be extremely rare for any player to ever have a 60-point game in the first place. It happens very rarely. It does happen occasionally. But so let's say that you wanted to increase the productivity of basketball so that more players had 30 points per game averages over 10 seasons, and perhaps even one of the greatest could reach or at least aspire to a 60-point-per-game season average. So hopefully you're with me right now. The greatest of all times, they've averaged 30 points per game for their career. Now I'm talking about what would it take to get to a 60-point-per-game. Do you do that by talking to the players? Do you talk to LeBron James and say, play harder, play faster, play smarter? Obviously, that's not going to work. He's already doing as much as he can. He's one of the hardest-working basketball players ever. How about talking to the individual teams? Well, I suspect that a lot of the teams would like to achieve that, but of course they don't. It's not going to work. Every player in the NBA would love to have a five-point better season, you know, go from 15 points per game average to 20. But don't you think they're already trying to achieve that already, individually on their own and even with the help of their teams? Well, you might do better to talk to the referees. Perhaps if they change the way they officiated the game, it might result in raising or lowering the average points per game score. Not calling as many fouls might result in a lower average points per game, so maybe calling more fouls would raise the points per game. Not really clear which direction that impact goes, and it probably would actually have very little impact. And it's still not working with individuals. You're actually sort of changing one of the components of the system. But if you really wanted to improve the points per game average for the league as a whole, you have to look at the system. You have to change the rules of the game. So let's make this even more obvious. What if you wanted to change the range of average points per game from 0 to 30 to minus 10 to 30? That is, have the potential for a player to have a negative score in a game. Well, there's no way that changing individual behaviors could make this happen. The only way to have it happen is to change the rules, meaning change the system. You know, basketball is a system. It has a set of rules. It has a defined playing area. It has a defined number of players who can be on the floor at any time. And within that system, the best performers in the world can average 30 points per game over their career and less than 40 points per game in any season. And there's no way to change the output of the game of basketball in terms of points without changing the system. That is, the rules, the playing area, the number of players allowed on court, how long a game lasts. So what I'm suggesting is think about that the next time you want to make an improvement to your performance. Think about LeBron James in that 30 points per game barrier that he faces and is not going to be able to get through, or if he does get through, he's going to get to 31 points per game. As I said, in one way, this is a concept that product managers understand intuitively. It's one reason we do what we do. We recognize that our tools give our customers a way to change the rules of the game to achieve new and often transformative results. But we often fail to turn the lens back on ourselves. We seldom step back to think about the systems in which we work ourselves, that is, our product management system. It's true for our product teams as well. Our product teams work within systems that likewise constrain our players, even our greatest of all time players, in various ways. And sometimes that's simply the laws of physics. 
But often the constraint is a process that is in place to help ensure quality and to keep teams producing coherently and so on. It is worth looking at the system itself occasionally to see if all the rules and constraints and even the tools are necessary. So for example, let's just assume that despite the fact that the product managers are the smartest people in the room, we often are, at least in that group, and we're all super skilled and talented with incredible insights, what if the Deming 95-5 rule applied to us as well? What if 95% in the variation in the performance of our get product out the door and successfully into the market system was due to the system itself and only 5% due to our own individual efforts? Well, if that were the case, then if you wanted to improve the performance of the system, you wouldn't focus on the individuals. You'd focus on the system and see what you could do to make the system create better outputs. Let me give you an example from another domain about how a system was changed to enable better outputs. And this is the concept of pokioki, which is a Japanese phrase which roughly means mistake-proofing. So, as you know, Deming was a hero in Japan. The Japanese industrialists, recovering from the destruction of World War II, were trying to rebuild their industrial might. And they discovered Deming and his ideas about statistical process control and applied them to their factories. In about a decade, the new Japanese factories were producing goods, heavy machinery, automobiles, machine tools, ships, appliances that rivaled any other country's output in quality and innovation, and to some degree in quantity as well. And Deming said, in relationship to this idea of system versus individual, that the goal was not to get the worker on the assembly line to be better at avoiding mistakes during assembly, and this directly applies to industrial stuff, of course, but to make it harder for that person to make mistakes. And the technique of pokeyoki, or mistake-proofing, arose to address that exact idea by modifying the item being assembled so it could not be assembled incorrectly. Rather than the worker having to figure out which way round a particular part had to be added to the assembly, the part itself was designed so it only fit the correct way. Now, pokeyoki was one of many industrial improvement techniques that the Japanese invented during this period with the inspiration of Deming and many other great industrial engineers, and the results were amazing. It was typical for the good performing companies in Japan to have fewer than one error in every million items that came off the assembly line. This was an unheard of level of quality. In the States, error rates on the order of one error in every hundred items was not uncommon, and one in a thousand was considered extremely excellent. So three orders of magnitude better was where the Japanese were at this point in time. Now everybody has moved up since then, but this was very amazing at that time. And the results had a big impact on markets and entire economies. For a time, Japan's auto industry exceeded the size of the United States' auto industry, despite their much smaller population and their much smaller geography, because of how good they had gotten at manufacturing and creating quality. So, Pokeyoki is a delightful illustration of the power of improving the system, in this case the design of parts to be assembled, compared to the power of exhorting individuals to be better. Now, let's think about how to apply these ideas to product management. Well, one of the things to think about, and I think about this all the time, is all the times that you said to yourself, or that I say to myself, I need to work harder to remember things, or I need to take better notes so I can find them later, or I feel like I already had this idea before, now how did that work? Or in general, all the times you exhorted yourself to be better. The examples I just gave are areas where I try to improve and where I feel like I could improve and where if I improved, I'd have a big impact. And you may have different areas where you wish you performed a bit better. But 
what all of these have in common is that they're individuals trying to be better, you and me and everybody else. So you might, if you're thinking about the Deming rule, think about how could we improve the system so that we didn't actually have to be better, but would nonetheless operate more effectively. And I think there are three main levers we can ask of our systems, all related to augmenting our cognitive capabilities, because product management is a pretty cognitive domain. So one thing is our systems can do a better job of remembering for us. There's lots of examples of this. I'll run through one in a minute. Our systems can do a better job of using math for us. And in fact, there are a lot of systems out there now that a lot of folks are using for doing analytics, and that's essentially what those tools are doing. They're doing a better job of math than we can do in our heads or that we can do individually. They can take more data. They can do better statistics on it. They can do better arithmetic. And our systems can do a better job of making connections for us. And my example that I'm going to talk about in a minute will also include some of that. So let me give you an example. I've used this example before in the podcast and in some of my writing on the blog, but I'll flesh it out a little bit more maybe than I have in the past. So we all know that as product managers, we should be spending a lot of time out in the field talking to customers, meaning both our actual customers and also other people who might someday be our customers to find out what their biggest and most significant problems are that we can solve that nobody is solving or that are being solved poorly. Now, this activity of talking to customers is called market discovery or customer discovery. There's lots of courses and coaching and trainings and blog posts about how to get better at doing customer or market discovery. Now, these trainings and courses and podcasts and blog posts are all for individuals, of course, to help us individually do better at this. Now, one of the things you find when you do a lot of market discovery is that you never get the whole story from just one conversation. You usually have to talk to multiple people in the market to find and then validate that there's a problem we're solving. It might be five conversations. It might be 10. It might be 100. So we have all these conversations. And if it's you having these conversations, and they're all happening over a relatively short period, you are likely to be able to make all the connections in your own brain that will surface a new problem that's worth solving. But what if it's not just you? What if it's you and two other product managers, each having market discovery conversations with 30 different people? And it's happening over the course of a year, not over the course of a month. In that case, how do you detect and then amplify the weak signal of an unsolved but worthwhile problem? Well, I'd say it basically requires superhuman cognitive abilities to do this on all three of your parts. You not only have to have the conversation with customers, you have to have the conversations with your colleagues, ensuring that you surface the most salient points of your interviews to them so they can connect what you heard to what they heard. And remember that the connection might be between two conversations 10 months apart. Can you remember the details of a customer discovery conversation 10 months ago? Perhaps you can. I'm positive that I can't. You know, I think of myself as a person who remembers a lot, but I am constantly given evidence that it's not true. But in particular, when I review notes of my customer discovery interviews 10 months ago, I'm always surprised by what I've forgotten. In fact, the nature of our cognition means that we're likely to remember certain things from those long ago con conversations, but we're also likely not to remember other things, all due to various reasons. One of the biggest reasons, of course, is that if you hear something that doesn't fit into a cognitive model you already have, you're less likely to remember it long term, which means that when the same idea comes up five months later and then six months after that, your brain will not be able to make that connection. Unfortunately, that connection is likely to be extremely valuable. If three or more people mention the same challenge 
in three different conversations, but you don't remember it, it means that it's unlikely to be a feature that's already known and captured. It's an unknown unknown. And those can often turn into big bucks if you address them when no one else even knows the problem is out there. So this is all just a long-winded way of getting to the fundamental question. Our teams are failing to find the gems hidden in our repository of customer discovery conversations. The gems are hidden and disconnected and forgotten. They're hard for individuals to recall and connect at the right time. And simply exhorting us individuals to remember better will have limited impact. It's just the nature of our brains that we will forget. And this is where a system might come in and help us. So what if we had a system that could remember our interviews for us, who we had them with, and what we talked about? It could capture what we felt was salient and important at the time and would help us go back in time to dredge through the items that didn't seem important at the time but might now be valuable. And it would work not only for my interviews but give me access to the interviews of my colleagues over time. What would this system have to be capable of to give us a 10% greater chance of finding that hidden gem that might be worth $100 million? Well, it actually would not have to be capable of too much. Obviously, it would have to store my interview notes and those of all my colleagues. Now, I'm making an assumption that we have good interview notes. Addressing that is a different problem than what I'm talking about right here, but let's assume that we have some notes. And maybe they're not great, but they're notes, and a lot of the key th things that we talked about are captured. Maybe we actually have transcripts of the conversations. So I've got the notes stored, mine and all my colleagues, and then the tool is going to allow me to maybe highlight the snippets that I thought at the time were notable and allow me to update those highlights at any later time on my or my other notes. So for example, I may decide to go back to an interview I did 10 months ago. And when I'm reading through that, I suddenly notice that, oh, something I just heard last week, this also came up in the interview 10 months ago, but I didn't really notice it the first time because it wasn't on my mind. And now I can say, oh, this is actually interesting. And I can then highlight it and then the tool is going to help me find these commonalities between the highlighted snippets. And the final thing that the tool is going to enable me to do is to collate all these related snippets into kind of a proto-problem statement that I can then use to do more research with. To me, this sounds like an amazing way to multiply the power of my mind to see connections and detect previously undiscovered problems, ones that are often sitting under our noses. So are there any tools out there that are like this? Well, in fact, there's one I know of, and there may be a few more. Product Board is a tool developed by Hubert Palin based on his experiences as a product manager at Good Technology a decade ago where he had all the experiences that all of us have with problems escaping notice. Um, it's interesting. Hubert was one of the original guests on this podcast, and you can find links to our two-part interview with him in the notes for this episode at alltheresponsibility.com slash 74. So Product Board does basically what I described with your discovery information. It has a lot of other functionality as well, but that's the piece I'm really excited about. Another tool that I've heard of, not really in the product management domain, but more typically used by writers, is called Tinderbox. Now, Tinderbox claims to enable individuals to think like this. I've never been able to quite get the hang of it myself, and it certainly has never caught on big, but it does pitch this idea about being able to make connections between different pieces of information that you have that maybe you can use to do dis better discovery with. And in fact, if you go back to the original conceptual ideas that eventually became the World Wide Web, it had many of these same ideas as well. In particular, Ted Nelson wrote about a system that he called Xanadu, which was essentially the World Wide Web, 
except that instead of linking to documents from another doc, for, like from one document to another document, you link to locations within the documents. And you could even incorporate sections of other documents into your own in what Ted Nelson called transclusions. Now, unfortunately, Xanadu was conceived before general purpose computing systems could really handle the concepts in terms of their power. And Nelson himself actually tried a few times to make it. He, he never really fully got it working in later years. There's a great book in which he describes some of the ideas behind Xanadu called Computer Lib and Dream Machines. It's a totally handwritten book. It's in tabloid size. It's kind of like a giant comic book about computers and what computers might do for us eventually. A lot of the ideas are still to be implemented, really, in, in systems. And another great example of that is Doug Engelbart's Augment system, which has many of these features as well. Doug Engelbart, you probably heard of because he was the inventor of the mouse. Um, he invented a lot of other kind of amazing stuff as well. His Augment system was implemented by his teams at the Stanford Research Institute and some other labs. But unfortunately, Engelbart, who was one of the giant brains of history, was not a believer in what we now call ease of use. And basically, no one but a few devoted acolytes could ever figure out how to use it. You can see it in action. There was a video of a demo that he did in 1968 at the AAAI-ACM Fall Joint Computer Conference in San Francisco, and it was a night of many firsts. The demo itself was filled with things that no one had ever seen before, including the first public demonstration of a mouse, but that was like the least important thing that that came up. That demo is very well known, actually. It's called the mother of all demos, typically. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but it's pretty amazing. Anyway, so a little bit of history on the World Wide Web there, and I'll put links to more information on the show notes. The point of this whole sort of sideline is to illustrate how a change in a system used by product managers might result in a significant change in our effectiveness at finding market problems we're solving. I'm going to give you some ideas about how you can start making use of these concepts. You can't change systems overnight, and the systems always resist change. Think about what it would take to change the rules of basketball, for example. But there are several ways to improve the system so it can be more productive, higher quality, or whatever your goal is. Now, obviously, you're doing that already for the products that you create. If you think of the products as systems, you're really striving to make them better in this way, to remove the impact of the individual, or to make the system deliver the value irrespective of what the individual does. And that's a great goal. But the first thing you can do, of course, for yourself when turning the mirror back on yourself is realize that your individual actions take place within a system. In fact, it's often a nested hierarchy of systems. Your tools are part of a system to the degree that you have them. The dev team's methodology and practices are part of a system. Your access to customers and the market is part of a system. And sometimes, to make significant improvements in your ability to create products, you will have to change your systems. For example, changing your tools can have a big impact. Like moving from a pencil on paper to writing notes on a computer, there are big differences in what you can accomplish if you make that transition. And that's not because you have changed. It's because the system you work within has changed. And it will also change the way you work, but it doesn't really change you. So you may have your own systems in which you work that can be changed. Something to think about. Number two, really, is that sometimes adding tooling is part of the solution. As soon as you start augmenting humans' cognitive abilities with tools, you often get significant improvements in quality and output. 
Think about trying to hire a software developer and telling them that their only tool was a text editor and a compiler. No integrated development environment, no build system, no source code control. They would, of course, not accept the offer because they know that their tools make them much more effective and powerful. We don't really have many tools like that in product management, and we should probably try to get more of them. And I think, as I mentioned, Product Board is one, and there's a few others. Finally, your product provides a system to your users. You already know this, which is why you think a lot about making the product usable for all the users, not just the experts. But what is the system in which your system resides? And do you have any influence on that? So for example, if you have a project management tool, which I used to manage a project management tool, is that used in some system that maybe you can have some influence in with your tool? Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But the higher up in the system hierarchy you make the change, the bigger the potential impact. So that's something to think about as well. So I hope this was interesting and thought-provoking. Sometimes I like to dive into mental models like Deming's 95-5 rule and just see where they take me and see if I can come up with good metaphors for helping me understand the concepts better. And this was one of those episodes. I mentioned several resources, books, and previous podcasts in the episode. And of course, you can find links to all of them in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 74. I mentioned Doug Engelbart's Mother of All Demos. I'll put links to the wiki pages for Ted Nelson and Xanadu and Engelbart's Augment System. I will put some links into some basketball stat pages I use for research on LeBron James and other players. I will also link to my 2015 two-part interview with Hubert Palin of Product Board, and I'll give you some information about W. Edwards Deming, so you can learn more about that, and some stuff about Japanese industrial engineering, including a book about Pokioki that I was lucky enough to work on when it was published back in the 80s. That was a long time ago. In the show notes, you'll also find links to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and all the other places. Uh, you, if you subscribe, you'll get new episodes automatically when I release them, which is roughly every week to two weeks. Uh, there's more on the show notes page, including how to get in touch with me directly, a comment section, I'd love to hear from you, a link to my book, and a lot more. And if you want to do me a big favor, Consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes or simply recommend it in your podcast app. This helps other product managers and innovators find it, and it spreads the word. So, hope this was good for you. Hope you enjoyed a new mental model that says it's not all your fault, but you need to change your systems in order to be more effective. Until next time, this is Nels Davis. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.